0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 311. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and
1: grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a
2: Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy.
0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Bob Murphy Show. Today I'm going to be speaking with Sheldon Richman, who has worn, and currently wears, many hats in the libertarian movement. Uh, and that's something I'll have him explain as we jump into the interview, but just so you know uh one of his current posts is he's the executive editor at the Libertarian Institute, but beyond that he's here i'm here I'm reading his bio that's at the Independent Institute. Sheldon Richmond is a research fellow at the Independent Institute for fifteen years. he was editor of The Freeman, published by the Foundation for Economic Education. Former vice president at the Future of Freedom Foundation, he is the author of America's Counter-Revolution, The Constitution Revisited, Separating School and State, How to Liberate America's Families, Your Money or Your Life, Why We Must Abolish the Income Tax, and Tethered Citizens, Time to Repeal the Welfare State. So Sheldon is uh, none too fond of coercion. So he and I go way back, um, and it's, this is one of those episodes where really didn't have an agenda. We, I knew vaguely we were going to talk about uh, his view on the conflict in the Middle East and then his reflections on the liberty movement, let's call it, and you know lessons learned, that kind of thing, from someone who's been around the block. So those are the two main topics, but we really just had a conversation. And so it was very pleasant. I hope you enjoy it. Here's my discussion with Sheldon Richmond. Sheldon, welcome to The Bob Murphy Show. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm a fan. Oh, and Likewise. Uh, so I, as we were chatting before we hit the record button, I know that you're an OG of the, what I would call the liberty movement. And then um, number one, can you respond? Like, I think you said that you would phrase it differently, like both the term liberty and movement. So if you want to give me... You know your reaction yeah, to that phrase deal,
1: i don't make a big deal of that i don't get mm-hmm. the liberty movement uh i would say if i was talking to someone else a libertarian movement just because i've been using that word for right. you know, lots of time a long time uh, movement people may or may not understand generally both inside and outside the movement that that's a fairly informal thing it's not like a mm-hmm. single organization or even a constellation of organizations i think if you just call yourself a small L libertarian and, and think about it and are interested in it. Mm. I, I can't end the movement. So that's,
0: it's broad. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. And then, uh, but so can you just give a, a quick autobiographical sketch of, uh, you know, how you came to this stuff and then, you know, the, the people you interacted with and the sure. organizations you've been affiliated with.
1: Sure. I mean, you use the term OG. Uh, I'm not a young guy. I mean, I, at times I feel kind of young, but, um, you know, I was born in the uh, next to last year of the Truman administration. Well, next no, not sorry, sorry. The, the first year of his his own term, 49, toward the very end. I, I, I just made it the 40s. You know, I was born a day after Christmas. So that's getting close to the end of the year. Right. I was a great tax deduction for my parents because <laughs> they, they could take it for the whole year, but they only had to put mm-hmm. up with me for a few days. Um, so I first... Uh, started thinking about ideas although i hadn't heard the word libertarian in 1964 which is very typical for my generation you're going to hear this story if you talk to other people my age other libertarians the goldwater campaign i had an older brother who unfortunately passed away many years ago a long long time ago but he had a political awakening before i did i was just a kid you know 14 wasn't going to be 15 until the end of that year uh but he started getting literature and badges and bumper stickers and telling me about it. And I, I always kind of liked uh, stories about the American Revolution and related stuff. The idea of, you know, individual liberty just appealed to me the first time I heard about it. It didn't take, you know, I didn't have to say, well, that's weird. Why do we want to be free? I mean, no, mm-hmm. it just. And my parents weren't, they were Republicans, but they weren't real political. So I wasn't getting it from them. Uh, I read conscious of a conservative which is which was his uh perspective uh Boer's perspective campaign book and uh I forget who wrote that book but it was ghosted by one or two people but you know it was generally good I had not thought about foreign policy yet he was a real hawk versus a real mm-hmm. cold warrior he didn't like just containment uh so I was thinking more of uh, well I thought okay what I'm hearing about Russia and communism yeah that's bad and uh Maybe we need to be nervous about it. This was the days, you know, where you had to go under the desk, you know, to save yourself from a a nuclear war. Your desk would be, who knew those (laughs) desks were so reinforced? I had no idea. They just seemed like, you know, cheap wooden desks. So from there, people in high school would say to me, or as I got, yeah, I got the high school, people would say to me, well, if you like that stuff, you need to read Henry Hazlitt's, you know how it goes, Mm -hmm. Economics Monologues. I never heard of it. And then, send your name away to this place on Irvington on Hudson it's called the Foundation for Economic Education you don't need to send any money once you're on their mailing list you're on your mailing list until your death they never drop you you'll get a free magazine a little magazine which was a little thing in those days uh, and so I started doing that and then someone says have you heard of Ayn Rand you know my t- my story is so typical
2: mm-hmm. if
1: if you talked to a lot of people a lot of libertarians my age you'd be getting bored with it you you wouldn't put them all on your show because Oh, here's another one. Uh, and so and then someone says, uh, well, you got to read Murray Rothbard. And then you got to read Lord of Here, read Human Action. I'll give you a book, you know, like this thing. <laughs> Just read that. Come back. Come back to me. And then I start associating with people. This was around the time that there was a libertarian caucus within the Young Americans for Freedom, which was the William F. Buckley set up student young conservative organization." Which had a budding libertarian. what We called it the Libertarian Caucus, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which were where I was. Where I was, I mean, I was. I was raised in Northeast Philadelphia, Jewish neighborhood, uh, and my 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 parents were the like, the only Republicans in that in that neighborhood. Everybody was a Democrat. They were Republicans. My father voted for Goldwater. My mother was scared by that nuclear bomb Daisy mm-hmm. ad and voted for Johnson, But she's a, the Republicans. They didn't vote for Kennedy in '60, So I started meeting these libertarian yafers in Philadelphia. We even had an office. It was, ironically, in the Empire Building, which was a fairly run down building. We were anti-empire. Uh, and then we went to this big uh, uh, conference in, uh, in 1969. I was at the St. Louis GAF Convention when the libertarians ran a slate of, uh, of, of uh, people for the board. We, we did endorse the guy, the guy who was going to be the chairman. We, we figured, let's not bite off too much. We're not going to win that, but let's try to get some people on the board. And we were taunted as lazy fairies, lazy fairies. Well, <laughs> you, you can tell Well, that's a play on. I don't have to mm. explain that. One of our guys burned his draft card and got pounced on by some, you know, ex-Marines. Um, mm. it, was a great, it was great fun. Rothbard, meanwhile, in New York, was saying, listen, Yaf, and telling the Libertarians, get out of Yaf. What are you doing? In St. Louis. So that's what we did. We got out of Yaf after that. We got beaten. I don't think any of our people got kind of elected. It. it was great fun. Uh, Murray wasn't there. Carl Hess was there, the great Carl Hess, who was a friend of Murray's at, at a certain time and uh, a guy I came to know better and, and kind of well. Uh, and we left and we set up the Society for Individual Liberty, which later came the, became the International Society for Individual Liberty. And I don't even know what's called these days. But uh, that that all began really in Philadelphia, but we had lots of people around the country. Um, From there, you know, in the 70s, I was attending conferences through uh, the uh, uh, Center for Libertarian Studies, which began in New York City. I I knew Rothbard. I'd been to his apartment a few times over the years. He was at my house once. I picked him up at the airport. He He was speaking. I don't even remember why he was coming in, but I had to pick him up at the airport at like, you know, midnight. He was coming in like some ungodly hour. We we drove him to our house where we had a steak dinner for him. This is like the wee small hours of the morning <laughs> mm-hmm. before I then took him to his hotel. So I was on very good terms with him. I was involved in the LP for a while when he was, uh, like in the Clark campaign. I was chaired the platform committee. I became national vice chairman in 1981, served one term. Uh, in 83, I, let, I ended up leaving the party. It, it just gave, it up, gave up on it. Uh, so I knew him, I knew Leonard Ligio, I worked with Leonard Ligio at the Institute for Humane Studies, I worked with Wolder Grinder, some of you know some of the greats that a lot of people unfortunately may not know, the younger people. Uh Bob, you you of course you know don't know these names. So I was I was really honored to know these people. I mean, I, I wasn't in their league, I wasn't like an original theorist. I I tried to be a popularizer, maybe a synthesizer, and wrote on a popular level. I mean, I wrote some scholarly things, the Journal of Libertarian Studies when Murray edited it but it was still in New York published I think four papers of mine that I wrote when I was doing some graduate work at George Mason University in history I didn't stick with it because it was, it was too busy was it? anyway there's there's a I mean so I guess I should talk about my affiliations real quickly
0: yeah um, my mind.
1: first real job in the movement was with the defunct is with a defunct organization called the Council for a competitive economy which was a, supposed to be a free market equivalent of the of the uh, of, of, of the chamber of commerce in other words mm-hmm. oppose all the things that businessmen particular businessmen tend to like like tariffs first thing we fought was the chrysler bailout of 1979 early 1980 lee iacocca the charismatic chairman mm-hmm. would be on tv uh they they were having a real hard time and they went to the carter administration seeking a bailout we opposed it we took out a full page ad in the uh uh you know the new york times i believe or Wall Street Journal. We were a Koch-created, funded organization back then. Uh, uh, we lost that battle, by the way, with Chrysler. Chrysler got bailed out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, from there, you know, I did other things. I worked for the Institute for Humane Studies. I worked for the Cato Institute in the uh, first half of the 90s. Uh, my affiliation now is the Libertarian Institute with Scott Wharton. Mm-hmm. I was one of the founders and the late Will Grigg. I'm the executive editor And I write my, uh, I've been writing a column now for a long time called TGIF. uh, Not thank goodness this Friday, but uh, the goal is freedom. Uh Uh, And
0: uh, I continue it there and occasional blog posts. That's what I'm up to. I think that covers it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So so thank you. Um, And and I know that, you know, you and I worked together, like you, you Commissioned—I don't know if that's the right verb—pieces from me for when you were at various posts. At the Freeman, yeah.
1: Did I not? I'm sorry. I left out my long—the longest job I ever held, fifteen years at the Foundation for Economic Education. Although I wasn't physically there, editing Mm. the Freeman. I never Mm -hmm. held a job longer than about five years. That one went fifteen years, and I'm very proud of that. And yes, you were one of my uh, for a couple years there, one of my go-to people who could explain economic uh, current controversies like for instance chinese currency manipulation which was a big thing back mm-hmm. then earlier 2000s uh you were one of the guys i could
0: depend on okay well thank you i appreciate that <laughs> hey everybody let's take a break from the action to talk about a new sponsor for the show which is vita so this is an interesting new app that i've come across they have an intriguing business model what it is it's a free spam blocking and privacy tool so you download the vita app And you select a second phone number that's yours, free and clear, no obligation on your part. Now, anybody who wants to contact you through either phone call or text via that second new phone number that you've established, if they're not on your contact list, then they have to pay whatever rate you determine in order to get through and for you to even see the message or receive the incoming phone call. And so what's happening here, big picture, I'm here commenting as an economist, is that there's lots of companies that are trying to market this way, but they would very much prefer to be able to target their marketing to people who are more likely to want their product or service. And so Vita is effectively allowing you to monetize that fact. And so what the companies are willing to pay in terms of targeting their marketing, you now are able to participate in that at whatever rate that you think your time is worth. So the way I'm looking at it right now with my regular phone, I'm getting all kinds of spam texts and calls all the time. And what Vita is allowing is a way for you to be paid for your attention. Again, whatever price you determine. So to see how it works, to give it a shot, go to Vita.io slash Murphy. That's V-I-D-A dot I-O slash Murphy. Start getting paid from these outside people trying to reach you at whatever rate you choose. If you go ahead and download today, you'll get your first $1 just for getting the app. Again, that's Vita.io slash Murphy. All right, let's get back to the conversation. So uh, we we, we talked folks, Sheldon and I, about like, what does he want to talk about? And something that's heavy on his heart lately has been the situation with Israel. So, you know, you take it away. How do you you want to go ahead and and, and frame kind of I'll kind of risk, but break in with questions because I don't really want to do a monologue. I get
1: tired of hearing my own voice. Uh, Well, let me start off by saying I take no joy. In talking about this issue, mm-hmm. despite what some of my own family members probably think, uh, I don't really like this. And when uh, the events of October 7th occurred, I was kind of quiet for a while. It was like, what can I, I you know, I have nothing to say, I have no, nothing to contribute. I've already talked about this before. I can't, my voice is not going to make any difference. It's like the reason not to vote, right? What's my no. one vote going to do? Um, however, I since then have done a few things, written a few things. Uh, I mentioned already that I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. Well, it's not a coincidence. My parents were moderately religious, what's called conservative, which is sort of that middle ground between Orthodox on one side and Reform on the other. There's a conservative ground, which thought the Reform were getting rid of too much Orthodoxy, but weren't Orthodox either. So they lived, Mm -hmm. you know, typical middle-class lives. My father was a, a real estate broker had his own office you know single office maybe one or two at most two salesmen it wasn't like a big thing so Mm. uh, we were comfortable we lived in a a decent middle class and largely jewish neighborhood Um, and my upbringing was moderately jewish Uh, even when i gave up religion in the late 60s early 70s i didn't give up israel Mm-hmm. Which is already indicative there, you know, the, the, the people who, the, Jew, the Jewish intellectuals and others who were concerned about formation of Israel, and this goes back, I'm talking now, before 19, 1900, said, if you do this, it will displace the real religion. It'll become a form of idolatry. The state mm-hmm. will be, the state, Israel, will take the place of God and the Torah which are the the five books Mm -hmm. of Moses, what lots of people think of as the Old Old Testament. And so I was an illustration of that. I I, I could give up the whole religion, not keep kosher, not not that we ever kept real strict kosher. In the house we did, but we'd eat out. So Mm -hmm. I brought up generally, you know, my mother would always say, everybody's got to draw the line somewhere. That was how she Mm -hmm. navigated, you know, that. Mm -hmm. Where do you, what do you do, what do you not do? Uh, I could give all that up and even give up belief in any anything supernatural and still think Israel, not that I wanted to move there, my parents never wanted to move there, but they visited, and I visited a couple times in the early 70s. Uh, as long as you were still faithful to Israel, then you were a Jew in good standing. Mm-hmm. So that's, which is kind of strange, I think. Uh, now, later in the 70s, I started encountering libertarians who said, let me give you some stuff to read. Because I used to f- be able to integrate it with my libertarianism, thinking, well, they bought land. They bought the land. Right. What's wrong right. with that? And that mm-hmm. was kind of, I kind of took that as a Lockean license.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: everything else follows from that. I don't really think, need to think too much about it. It's not like they just barreled in there, I thought. Mm-hmm. And that's it. But then I start running talking to people, Roy Childs, who's a name you might know. Roy Childs yep. was a longtime editor of, of the uh laissez faire Books catalog, worked for Cato, uh, very well read, wrote lots of stuff, edited the Libertarian Review, a magazine that uh ran for several years. Um and I was talking to him one day and a few other people, and he said, You need to you need to read a little bit. And and Roy was someone I had a lot of confidence in. He it wasn't mm-hmm. someone who said, uh, and yeah, a little skeptical of anything he says. No, he he had a track record as far as I was concerned. And the book he recommended to me was David Hurst's. I have it on my shelf over there, called "The Gun and the Olive Branch." Hurst is a British uh, journalist. He's a reporter, and this book has gone through a few editions. It's about it's about this thick now, and it it's it's a very what I call a very fair book. Mm. I mean, he points out where Arabs and Palestinians did pretty rotten things to uh, you know, Jewish people who were living there, even, long, even living there before the Zionist movement got going. So it's, a, it's an even-handed book, but on the whole, it's, it, it, it gives a story that's not real flattering for the Zionist movement. So I started doing that. I started reading that material and then meeting people, like a guy who uh, Murray Rothbard claimed as a friend, Rabbi Elmer Berger, the late Rabbi Elmer Berger, who lived in New York for a long time and knew Murray Later moved to Florida, but he was one of the last great reform anti-Zionist rabbis. And one one of the things I was learning in this period was there was a an Jewish anti-Zionist tradition that hardly anybody knows about. My parents wouldn't know. Oh, well, one exception: my grandfather, who was Orthodox, my paternal grandfather, Sam Richmond. I once heard him say, and I wish I'd asked him questions. It's one of those things, like, can I go back and have one session with him? And, and I wasn't like a little kid, so I can't even blame that. This was around the time of the 67 war between the Arab countries and Israel. Probably right, maybe right afterwards. I don't have, I uh, don't remember all the details. So I would have been 17. Mm. That's, that's old enough to ask questions. But I hadn't given up Israel yet. And I heard him, my mother we used to go visit him on Saturday afternoons. We drive over, which you know, as good Jews, you should not drive. You can't drive. Yeah, over. I was going. Okay, I, not, I we, knew enough we, to know
0: we, that that was yeah.
1: We drove. He would. The grandfather uh, wouldn't have driven. Right. And and his wife, my grandmother, my these are my Zayda and my Bubba. I mean, that's, that's mm. what we called them, which is the Yiddish word for grandmother.
0: Can, can I stop just for the whenever, better listener? Because whenever you observant Jews are not supposed to do any work from yeah. what Friday sunset to Saturday a sunset. Fire,
1: gather firewood. Yeah. They would leave a burner on with, with a kettle of water, you know, Friday night before sundown, because that's when Shabbos, the Sabbath, begins. And so that would be on all through Saturday until Saturday night when, they could, when the sun went down and so, the Sabbath was over. So they always had hot water. I don't know if that's considered mm-hmm. cheating or not. They didn't light it on the Sabbath. <laughs> anyway, yeah. we were It re-
0: was real fast. I just remember Richard Feynman, the physicist, had a thing where some – Orth—I I forget if he was in grad school or something—but some Orthodox, I think there were other students, asked him if electricity were fire, and he was trying to like explain. He didn't understand why they, and then it turned because they were trying to figure out, you know, are we allowed to, to turn our lights on yeah. during Sabbath or something like that? And he got real mad, thinking, "Oh, this is so goofy," you know, because he was an atheist at that point. So anyway,
1: well, I've heard that in Israel, you know, the Orthodox get around this stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. this is this was from an, a Jewish Israeli. Uh, secular type who's not alive anymore, Israel Shahak, his name was, who was also a Palestinian rights advocate. But he he would talk about how the, uh, the uh, Orthodox could get around this. So on Saturday, if they need to turn a light on, they have a thing rigged, or maybe there's even a commercial product, where if they open a window, it turns the light on. You can open a window. That's not uh-huh. considered work. But uh-huh. and if it triggers, if you set that up before the Sabbath uh-huh. and it and turns yeah. your light on, that's okay. Or boys aren't allowed to listen to girls singing. So they have boys with very high voices recording the popular songs that are that's sung by female artists. So the boys can be listening to it. It may sound a lot like the, the, the you know, maybe, uh, you know, Taylor Swift or somebody. But it's, since it's a boy or, or, or a guy imitating her with a high voice, that's OK. I mean, So anyway, let, we're not talking about the hypocrisy of, uh, <laughs> of orthodoxy. That's not the point here. Uh, I started reading anti-Zionist stuff, mostly Jewish sources, Mm. but also non-Jewish sources. And I started reading the history.
0: So, but I interrupted. You were saying how your grandfather said something. Oh, yes.
1: Yes. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I missed the point, point point. So, you know, my mother who did not have a religious upbringing became, was Jewish, but lived in very secular area of of, uh, Florida, like Tampa, the Tampa area, Clearwater area, uh, but became more, more Jewish for my father mm-hmm. when they got married, when they met. So uh, she must have been talking about what tough time Israel's having or how great they did in the war, something like that. And my grandfather said, the Jews are the cause of all the strife over there, all the trouble. You know, I never heard anything like that. And she never, she said, how can you say that? They have just one little sliver of land and all these Arabs want to drive them into the sea. Can, you ought to go and visit. They made the desert bloom. You ought to go. And my grandfather would say, I wouldn't set foot over there. And, and he led, he was the only guy with a voice in our family. He was sort of a mm-hmm. cantorial voice. He wasn't a cantor, but he but he could do that. And he, he prayed three times a day. He, he managed a little synagogue. He walked over there. You know, this guy was serious about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he would lead our Passover Seder for two nights. The first two nights you have a And We had a big extended family Seder, at least the mm-hmm. first one. I think even, no, no, two nights, two nights. And he would lead it. And, you know, you read the, uh, the the story of the Exodus from Egypt, slavery, the Haggadah, it's called. And there's a line in there where it says, next year in Jerusalem. It's a famous line. It's right, a longing the, politi- the political types turned that into, yes, see, they wanted a state even back then. The other side says that's a spiritual longing. It's not political. My mm-hmm. grandfather edited the line every year. He would say, next year in Philadelphia. That's huh. where we already were. Mm-hmm. I don't think any, and, and the people would chuckle. My cousins and aunts mm-hmm. and uncles would chuckle. And I probably chuckled too. I, I I wouldn't have known what it meant. But they none of them knew what it meant. Even, even his, you know, his my father, his son, my father's brother, his other son. <laughs> I just think they took it as, oh, that's just Sam, that's Schlein, right. that's Zeta right. being funny. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was being funny.
2: Right, right, okay.
1: So I read and read and read, but I never talked to him about it. He died in the '70s, sometime. He was, you know, he, he was pretty old. He was in his '70s, late '70s, I guess. I'm not sure they we knew. He was from Lithuania, by the way. His wife was from Belarus, but they came over before World War I. Thank goodness I might not be here otherwise. Uh, They lost family to the Nazis who didn't come here. Why they came so early, I'm not really sure. We don't know that story. Mm. That's a shame. And there's nobody left that generation. And the next generation, they're gone. So I don't know why he came so early, but thank you. Thank you. He came to America. He, he loved America, although he always claimed he was a socialist. He was a small businessman. Earlier in his life, he ran like a painting and, and paper hanging little business. You know, he, mm-hmm. in fact, he'd do our house sometimes, I assume for free. He'd come in and put paper up on the wall or paint. Uh, but he would call himself a socialist. I wasn't sure why why uh, about that either. Um, so anyway, I pursued my studies. I talked to people like Rabbi Berger, like Alfred Lilienthal, another very prominent Jewish anti-Zionist. He, he died. I don't know when he died in the '90s, '80s, or '90s. But you know, no, that would, would have been later than that. I knew him in the '90s, maybe the '80s too. So, and then I just read a lot. I, I watch, and I try not to shrink from debate. I watched I read the other side. I look at the other side. Sometimes it's not fun to do. I mean, confirmation bias. I'm probably more conscious of confirmation bias than I've ever been in my life. You know, when you, when, you, when you hear, oh, here's something that uh, attacks your view, you get a little feeling in your stomach like, uh oh, has this person discovered something I don't know or I can't answer? But then, you know, you know, if you work hard, you can overcome that. Everybody faces that. So that's, I think that's my story, but feel free to ask questions.
0: Okay. So we so, I can talk about
1: the current events, but go ahead. Yes. Yeah,
0: yeah, so, I mean, th- that's interesting. To, so I'm glad you gave that backstory just to show it's not that from birth you were rabidly anti-zionist maybe one thing before you jump into your analysis of like the current events i think the term zionism gets like a lot of people are hearing but if someone never actually had it spelled out to them maybe now they're at the point where they're afraid to ask because it's like they'll they'll look idiotic so what like for example a lot of people say hey to be anti anti anti-zionism is not anti-semitism what what does that mean
1: Well, to begin with the word Zionism, yeah, sometimes even I hesitate to use the term thinking it's, I mean, I know better, but it's as if that's a term that the anti-Semites came up with and and Jews, you know, would never use that. So it sounds like such a bad thing, but that's, of course, not true. Uh, Zionism, Zion refers to the Holy Land, the Promised Land. And there's a Mount Zion. So the, that word you know, comes out of that uh, area. And the Zionist, the founding, the, the person who's considered the founder, although it's, it had been talked about by other people, was Theodor Herzl, right, who was a, a journalist, lived in Vienna, uh, late 19th century, dies in 1904, so it doesn't get very far into the 20th century. He writes a book called, which uh, it's typically translated, The Jewish State. Now, German, I don't speak German, but I've done a little checking on this. This doesn't get pointed out very much. He was, he was a totally secular person. In fact, he, had, he would have a Christmas tree. He didn't have his, ch- his son circumcised. His first uh, solution to the, quote, Jewish problem was to propose to the Catholic Church, because Austria it was Austrian-Hungarian, you know, the Hungarian Empire at the time. But he, he proposed to the Catholic Church. That all the Jews be converted. That's how, That was his first, that was his plan A for mm-hmm. solving the Jewish problem. You know, the anti-Semitism, the lack of being able, um, uh, inability to assimilate and be accepted by people around you as, as, as a real member of society. Those were real issues. I don't deny either mm-hmm. uh, at all. Uh, well, the, the church didn't want to hear that. So he had to go to plan B. Okay, let's get a state. Let's have a state. Uh, and he was willing to have it. It didn't have to he didn't even originally propose what was called Palestine or what was the uh, the British mandate. Well that no, wasn't the British mandate yet because World War One hadn't happened. That's the that's a comes after World War One. Uh but it was known, you know, roughly known as Palestine in that area. And uh, he didn't that wasn't even his first proposal. He thought of Uganda, of uh, of uh, of um, uh, oh, I don't know, a few other places, some island off Africa. You know, he just wanted if we can't live in Europe, let's have our own place, because he had covered the Dreyfus trial in France in the late 19th century, where Dreyfus was an assimilated Jewish, uh, what was he, colonel? I forget who it was, what his office was in the military, and he gets framed as sending secrets to Germany. He didn't do it, and he was convicted. And it tore the country apart over this. Now, one thing that tells you is at least half the country then was pro-Dreyfus, if it tore the country right, apart. Right. If it didn't mm-hmm. tear the country apart, then maybe you do have a real problem. But the, there was a big division, and he had covered it. And there's some myths around whether that really turned him into the Zionist he would become, Herzl now. But Herzl says it's the anti-Semites that make us Jews. Now, he didn't really think of himself as Jewish. Mm-hmm. But now he sees, you know, hatred being directed at a Jewish... Uh, a military member in France, where things seemed to be going all right up till then in France, he says it's the anti-Semites that make us Jewish. So he 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 forms this group, which becomes known as the World Zionist Organization. They use the word, so it's it is the word of the found, of the founders of this movement. Uh, but it wasn't well received by Jews. This gets back to the Jewish anti-Zionism, the unknown history. Although there are some books on it, if you want to look it up. Uh, When when Herzl wanted to hold the first Congress of the World Jewish Organization, World Zionist Organization, he wants to hold it in Munich. Interesting. Uh, Mm -hmm. But he can't hold it in Munich because the rabbis there protest and refuse and probably even complain to the authorities saying, don't let them gather here. Not exactly a libertarian position. But they didn't do it. That's why they met in in Basel, Switzerland. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Why didn't I, they – they just thought it was going to stir up the public hatred they or they dis- – They
1: were anti-Zionist. It was a very minority view okay. for okay. a couple of reasons. You know, The phrase a land without a people for a people without a land surfaces around this time. I think that's come up – a colleague of uh, Herzl's name, Israel Zangville, uh, says that. So some rabbis go to uh, go to Israel – Maybe this is apocryphal, but some go, they, some go there, not to Israel, to Palestine, to check all this out anyway, and they write back, you're right, it's a beautiful bride, but she's already married. In other words, there are people here, mm-hmm. and Jewish intellectuals, there's a guy named Asher Ginsburg, who's a, who's a contemporary of Herzl's, his, his, his pen name is Ahad Ha'am, you might have seen that. He immediately, he visits, he immediately writes a about what he witnesses there. We got real trouble ahead. There are people here, and the Jewish attitude of the people that are going over there and in the writings about Zionism are very arrogant, as if these people don't matter. Why don't they just move out of the way? This is is ours. Going back, you know, 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Get out of the way. And he and others who call themselves spiritual Zionists or cultural Zionists protested political Zionism. For them, it was a spiritual thing. They wanted to renew Hebrew and Jewish consciousness around the world. And they might not have been in principle against the state someday, but this idea of let's have a political movement that just like barrels in there and get out of the way. We're back. Mm-hmm. After 2,000 years, we're back. Thanks for holding it on, to, on you know, keeping us safe for hold, holding on to it for us. But we're back now. You can go wherever, uh, they, were, they warned about that. And, the, and that tradition carried on. So you have Orthodox anti-Zionists and you have Reform anti-Zionists. I think a lot of the Orthodox have now gone over, especially since 1948 with the actual formation of the state. But uh, that's kind of the background of that term. Now, the conflation, the weaponization, I think, of, of anti-Semitism comes from conflating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. Obviously, they're two distinct things. You, how would you have Jewish anti-Zionists if they were really if anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism were the same thing? Religious Jews, not just people who nominally call themselves Jewish, but you know, mm-hmm. religious uh, Orthodox and and religious Reform. That wouldn't make any sense.
0: Uh, and to well, this thing, haven't they? They've invented the term "self-hating Jew," right? Is that what that is for?
1: That helps, doesn't it? Yeah. But now we're playing what? Now we're becoming old Freuds. We know who's self-hating. Right. As somebody once said, I forget who it was. I got a lot of reasons to hate myself. Being Jewish is way down on the list. <laughs> <laughs> I forget who said that. Some comedian maybe. Must have been a comedian. Maybe it was Jerry Seinfeld. I don't think it was Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, so... But you can see how the Anti-Defamation League and the APAC, which mm-hmm. is the, the main lobbying organization of the, the, the Israel lobby, uh, uh, can play on this because it silences people. We don't know how many people because they've remained silent, or, or it's discredited people who didn't remain silent. And you can understand why. Who wants to be accused of being an anti-Semite? Maybe David mm-hmm. Duke doesn't mind, but most people don't want to be. Even anti-Semites don't want to be known as anti-Semites. Right, so, right. That's going to shut a lot of people up who say, why do I need to hassle? Yeah, I don't like what Israel's doing to Palestinians, but gosh, I don't want to wade into that, especially what are the benefits? My voice is not going to change anything anyway. It's, again, we're back to the voting paradox, right? So uh, the, a couple of years ago, the what's called the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, you, remember, you probably remember this controversy, came up with a definition of anti-Semitism. Uh, and it was something like having a certain attitude toward Jews. It didn't say what the attitude was. Having an attitude toward Jews. And here's some examples. And it gave 11 examples, and I think seven of them were about Israel. So if you say, I think Israel is a racist country, leave the merits of that claim aside. Okay, mm-hmm. You can argue about what does it mean to be racist. But if you just say that, that's an example that the IHRA and all their fans Including like the State Department of the United States. I mean, they adopted that stuff. The Education Department—that's uh, that's considered an example of anti-Semitism. And I just think that's pernicious. And I think the real intention here is to inoculate Israel, the, the Israeli government, against criticism and the and a lot of the Israeli people's attitudes. It's not just the government. I think that I think the public. Very much share the polls seem to show very much share this a very aggressive attitude is what others uh, uh, even the Israeli uh, human rights organization Betzalem calls a Jewish supremacist attitude uh, and I think it's 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 to inoculate Israel from criticism
0: because you risk being called an anti Semite. Well, that's, what, that's very very big to to me. What I think there are two things that jumped out you know, they were always sort of under the surface, but really came to the forefront, you know, since October 7th is lots of people making perfectly reasonable uh, criticisms of, you know, Hey, I don't think Israel should be engaged in so much bombing. Like look at all these innocent kids that are getting killed. And then that is construed as, Oh, so you don't, you know, you think the Jews should be pushed into the ocean. Right. I was like, no, right. I, I didn't say that. <laughs> right. But then at the other hand, I've been surprised, you know, I guess maybe my, me being naive at how much open, like genuine anti-Semitism you do see, you know, just like if someone makes a comment and then someone will, uh, I forget the way they even do it, but like to signify the person's Jewish, you know, like if someone d- defends central banking and someone's like, oh, well, look, the guy's a Jew. So, you know, <laughs> you know how that is. Like, you know what I mean? And so somewhat like a lot of it, I think, is just kind of like young kids just trolling and being like, they know who sure. this, this shocks people, so I'm going to do this. And they don't really, it's not that they really like Adolf Hitler kind of thing, but yeah. whatever it may be, you know, prima facie, there is, I'm was somewhat taken aback at how much openly like, or like with the Kanye West stuff, yeah. you know, that, that recently broke. And I think some of that was taken out of context or whatever, and some things were mis, But no, I mean, he was saying stuff that, five years ago I would not have predicted somebody like that would be saying openly. Yeah. And so anyway, it, it seems like there's both, yeah, so it, both it, sides it, can see what they want to just to think, yep, we're totally right in this.
1: I think that when we discuss things like this, and it's not the only subject where what where, where I'm going to say applies is I think two words have to be avoided all and none. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very <laughs> dangerous. Now I realize mm-hmm. these, this is not an era of nuance Yeah. on anything. Nuance, I think, is perceived as wishy-washiness. So maybe I'm going to come across as wishy-washy, but I I insist on being nuanced. Uh, Things like what's going on now will always bring out the creeps. That's true. Mm -hmm. My problem with the other side, the people that are sort of the, uh, you know, to the very end defenders of Israel, no matter what they do, Israel right and wrong, right or wrong. Well, because I don't think it's ever wrong. Israel right or right, because it can't be wrong. They want to portray it all as anti-Semitic. And that's false. It's at the same time, it's wrong to say, you know, none of it is anti-Semitic. The problem is, in any given case, telling what's anti semitism and what's not. I mean, because two outward behaviors. One could be anti-Semitic and one could be simply anti-Zionist. It's not always clear unless the person, you know, really states his views. Like Jews yeah. control everything, all the banks, all the press, you know, it's a problem. We, we got, you know, that person's giving that, you know, giving, uh, showing their cards. But that's not typically what happens. Let me take an example. Yes, I think this was yesterday or the day before. It was all over the news. There's a statue of, a, uh, uh, of a, the late Amy Winehouse, who was like a jazz singer. Who I guess committed suicide or drug, died of an overdose yet. Everything
0: is overdose, yeah. Real
1: drug problems. Mm. Uh very good voice. And so not an old person. And there's a statue of her in, in London. I didn't even know there was one. So I get a I get a uh alert on my phone from Spiked magazine, which is a kind of a populist. It used to be a kind of a Marxist, but it's now very sort of populist. Uh I mean, I kind of like Trump, uh almost. Uh alert from them saying that the, that the, the, the uh, statue was defaced because on her statue, she's wearing a, a pendant with a Jewish star.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, you don't know if that's a Jewish star or if that's a star of the state of Israel because the state of Israel picked up the, the, the star of David, right? The five, yeah, the yeah. six, uh, you know, the two triangles inverted, the, the six-pointed star. So I don't know why she wore it. I, I looked it up quickly. She didn't seem to have views on really any views on Israel that I could find and not, not much of a religious uh, upbringing, but that's, uh, that's irrelevant. Somebody had put over there a sticker with the Palestinian flag. That, now, that, you know, when they say deface, that's all it that was done. It wasn't like broken. Or, at first, mm-hmm. I wasn't sure what happened, but that's all it was. Now, I'm not defending that. I think that's a disgrace. I also don't know why a person did that. It doesn't mean the person... I'm not sure that person necessarily is an anti-Semite. Maybe, too. But I'm just saying in any given case, how can you really know? I mean, I can't read somebody's heart or mind or Mm. conscience and know why they're doing something. But, yes, there are anti-Semites, and we'll gang up on this. Although, you know, in in years past, anti-Semites were in favor of Zionism. It was like, what, the Jews? There's a state for Jews now? Hey, that's a great idea. I'll pack their bags. Right. right. As soon as we get you on a plane. I mean, that's like a natural, seems like a natural combination of positions. I don't like Jews. Right. Jews, go over there. There's your country in the Middle East. Get out of uh, London or New York or whatever, whatever it is. So, yeah,
0: sort of like white American racists wanting yeah. black people to go back to, you know, here, let me, be. yeah, then it's like, yeah, so it's not, it's not yeah. so
1: simple. Now, today,
0: I take it from what I
1: read, anti Semites tend to be anti Zionists. So, anti semites white Arabs? Okay, that's new. That's news to me.
0: That's news yeah. to me too. Um, that that sure. is interesting. On the you're right with the deface. Like if you were watching, you know, a, a Star Wars movie, and there were monuments all over, you know, to to the Emperor, or to Darth Vader, or something, and then someone came up and put a little sticker of like Luke Skywalker's face or Yoda's face yeah. on it, and then snuck away before the stormtroopers caught him, you wouldn't think, oh wow, that person's bigoted. You would say no, they're like you know doing some some uh counter propaganda to try to yeah. you know stand up to the empire and so right. it, it, you know that wouldn't be motivated by hate that would be like in protest yeah. of geez, the Empire just blew up that planet of Alderaan and killed all those people, so I'm gonna you know go ahead and right. alter the the propaganda they're putting out with these statues so right, should, you're right. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. to be clear, so I'm clear not and not for you, I know you're get what I'm saying, but be clear to anybody. They should leave her the White House statute alone. Yeah, Leave her alone. She's dead. She can't talk. She can't defend herself. I don't even know she's – I'm not sure she's accused of anything. But you don't do that. You just don't do that. I don't like that sort of thing. I condemn it. I mean, even if it's just anti-Zionist, I condemn it, whether it's mm-hmm. anti-Semitic, or anti-Semitic or not. So there are bad people on the other side, too, who do bad things. If, look, if someone says – And there's an, I believe, unconfirmed report that in Australia, there was a a demonstration, a street demonstration after uh, the the late unpleasantness in Gaza. It's been reported that people were chanting, you know, something like, gas the Jews. Now, Mm. it's been, I looked at, I tried to find out the truth about it. It seems unconfirmed and no one seems to even have a video, an audio of it. Uh, Maybe it happened. I'm not saying it didn't happen. If it happened... I don't have much trouble believing that's anti-Semitic. First of all, it's stupid. Who's leading the street demonstrations and helped close down Grand Central Terminal a few months ago? Jewish Voice for Peace and not in our name. These are Mm -hmm. Jewish organizations and it's not just in the United States. Now, I don't give my approval of shutting down terminals or blocking streets. I think protest needs to take other forms. That's a separate issue. But the point is, why would you say, why would you make some kind of anti-Jewish remark when Jews, especially younger Jews, are leading the charge against Netanyahu's conduct of this—I won't even call it a war. War usually has two armies, you know, shooting at each other. The slaughter in Gaza, and also, you know, the the routine daily humiliation and, and I think oppression of the West Bank you know, uh, Palestinians. I mean, it's, things aren't rosy there. Um, so that's kind of my attitude. Look, look the Hamas people and, and some non-Hamas people apparently also came through that, that fence on October 7th and did terrible things, unspeakable things, and took hostages, bad bad stuff. Uh, we know now even from Israeli sources they didn't kill all the people. There was actually friendly fire. Those numbers we don't know, but there was some friendly fire. Um uh, very, very, I mean, what can I say? Terrible stuff. I don't agree with people who won't condemn them. Norman Finkelstein, who I agree with a lot of his historical analysis on this stuff, and is, you know, uh, uh, very critical of Israel. While he calls it an atrocity, what Hamas did, he won't condemn Hamas, which I think is ridiculous. If, if, if you're calling something an atrocity, I think you've already condemned it. You need to mm-hmm. also use the word condemn there aren't good atrocities and bad atrocities, as far as I'm concerned. That's a moral term. So he's, he's wrong about that, but he, he won't do it. And I think that he's full of it for that reason. They did terrible, terrible things. But I agree with the, the, uh, the uh, Secretary General of the, uh, of the UN, and I can, I've never said those words before. I've never mm-hmm. agreed with this. <laughs> but he said, uh, you know, a couple of days later, no, he said two things. Nothing can justify well, – he said three things. Nothing can justify – what Hamas did on the 7th, uh, nothing can justify, I mean, that cannot justify what Israel is now doing in Gaza. And then, and then he also, and then he went, the third thing, which got him into so much trouble, even calling for his firing, what happened on October 7th did not happen in a vacuum. Just saying that mm-hmm. got him into trouble. Now, he didn't get fired enough people, I guess, most of the, U.N. are, are not going to fire him over that. But Israel called, for, called that anti-Semitic. But that's, a tr- that's true. It's, it's, not a, it's not removing blame. I mean, somebody could use it to remove blame. I wouldn't use it to remove blame for the people that committed those atrocities on the 7th. But it, it's still true that history didn't begin on October 7th. Just the way an Israeli would never say history began on October 8th, would they? They'd say, right. oh no, look at the 7th. Well, a lot of people who sympathize with the Palestinians say you're looking at the seventh. How about looking at 48, 1948, 1967, and on and
0: on and on. So, so what you, I mean with that stuff? I, I guess the the problem is that yeah, depending w- which per- side you're listening to and the uh, person defending what one particular side's actions, they can just pick the the framing. So, like, uh, you know, a a believing Jew would say, well, go back to, you know, look at the, um, you know, God gave the land to, you know, told Moses slash Joshua that go in and it's yours and God created everything so he can give it as he pleases. And so, obviously, secular people are going to say that's not really a legitimate claim. But I guess my point is, like, what what principles do you use just to say it doesn't matter what the history is going forward? Secular people,
1: because I take it Walter Block is secular. But he believes there's a biblical claim. But what he doesn't, does, even if you start back mm. 2,000 years ago, when mm. allegedly the Romans exiled the Jews, I mean, there's a historical work show by a guy named Shlomo Sand, who's an Israeli historian, who says uh, there's not even a single book on the exile of 70 A.D. There's not, there's no, there was no exile, in other words. There's not a single book documenting it. It's, it's always mentioned in popular stuff, but nobody ever shows it. But Block, so Bob talks about that. He says the Romans threw Jews off the land. So what's wrong if they're genetic descendants? Genetic. They don't have to be like really direct relatives, right? It's my great, 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 great to the ex-power grandfather lived in that house. So I want it. That, that would be a dicey claim anyway. But he doesn't even make that kind of claims. Just that our people were there. But he, that's starting the movie too late. How'd they get there? I've read the, uh, the five books of Moses and, and then the book of Joshua. They didn't buy the land. It was a, wasn't that a genocide? Wasn't that an ethic cleansing? They might've had God, God told them to do it. Maybe you can argue about that, but they went in and slaughtered everybody. So how can, how can it, conquest be the, the, the fruit of a legitimate uh, uh, ownership? So that would be my challenge yeah. to
0: walk. The block my well, well, is, right just to be clear though that's why i was saying you had someone would have to believe yeah the, in, in god and you know yahweh or whatever that, yeah, but that I, he would I, I have not, the authority to tell people that's why yeah it, if you were i'm not true. sure
1: i don't think block is a believer maybe maybe it's wrong. Oh, I, I'm, I'm not, no. I could have mentioned block in my first little answer to you i knew mm-hmm. block way back then too in mm-hmm. 1966 68 mm-hmm. 69 oh, back then uh if he's, if he's a believer, it's, it's news. To oh, I, I, don't he, think, I don't think he is. He, he okay. wasn't as of the well, last time. But he, but he yeah. holds on to I this biblical to story as hard as any believer does. So right, it's not right. even a secular religious line. It's not a very clear line. Mm. Uh, as I understand international law, I'm not a lawyer, and less, much less not an international lawyer, biblical stuff has no standing. So mm. you couldn't go before the world court and say, you know, my people – occupied Judea and, and, uh, and Israel, the, mm-hmm. two, the two kingdoms, once they divided into two kingdoms, way back in whatever it was, you know, B.C., that, would have, that has no standing, as I understand it. Which makes sense because, you know, why stop there? Almost any, co- any place on earth could have some ancestors come back saying, thousands of years ago, my people lived here, you kicked them off. I mean, look, Thomas Sowell, there's much to be learned from Thomas Sowell and his book on uh, 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 conquests and cultures and migration and culture, very valuable stuff. You know, that's been the history of the world from the day people could walk, I guess, and get around on two feet. They conquered other people. It's not, I'm not happy about this. It's not pleasant. Uh, who knows what history would have been like. We'd all be a lot richer, I guess, if, if Mises had lived back then and said, hey, instead of fighting, we could be getting gains from trade. What are we doing? Mm. Division of labor, come on. Unfortunately, he didn't write that until, you know, later on in the 40s, the 1940s <laughs> of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, AD. Uh, everybody conquered everybody. Slavery was a ver- is a very old story. I mean, the woke types make us think, nah, it was all invented by white Westerners. That's nonsense. That's total historical ignorance. And you, you know this stuff, and your audience is going to know this stuff. Everybody enslaved everybody. I even learned from Thomas Sowell that the Maori on New Zealand, who on TV shows are always portrayed, you know, I'm sure they were oppressed by the, uh, by the English when they got there, yeah. the people they sent there. But they're all on, the TV, on, on current TV in fiction – like the police stuff, because I've watched, I watched a f- few New Zealand shows, they're always portrayed as, you know, very pacifistic and, you know, the legacy of, uh, of their being conquered and suppressed. Seoul says that in the 1830s, they conquered an, a- an island to their east and enslaved that population. I don't know the name of the island. To the east of New Zealand. And um, the Maori were once slaveholders. And we know Africans were slaveholders. We know Arabs were slaveholders. Uh Whites were slaves, Slavs. The word comes from Slav. They're white. So nobody's got a monopoly on on this kind of oppression. So I don't like even the critics of Israel, who I otherwise would sign side with uh, and who would be considered themselves left or radicals, radical left. I get very annoyed with them because they, they I think they hurt their their own case by saying Zionism is just another case of white, Western white supremacist mm-hmm. imperialism or uh, colonialization and I don't think that's right I think, it's, I think there's something unique about Zionism which is not to give it a free pass that's not my point but I don't think it should just be folded in and then you use your regular template and talking points against you know, white supremacist empire because that also contains an anti-capitalist element if you listen to them long enough when they talk about decolonialization they want to throw some they want to throw a lot of baby out with the bathwater. This mm-hmm. is something that Peter Bauer, the great free market development economist, used to write about. They want to get rid of stuff that they shouldn't get rid of, like trade,
0: division of labor, like private property. Uh, so I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um just looking at the clock here, I want to give some time sure. to this last topic that we we intended to bring up. So you had mentioned as we were corresponding about doing an episode with you. You, uh, your outlooks on the case or the prospects for liberty are, are bleak is I think the word you use. So can you (coughs) uh, talk about that?
1: Yeah. Um, I don't like talking, there's another one I can take no joy, another subject I take no joy in talking about. I certainly don't want to spread any negative attitudes to libertarians, especially younger ones who, Mm -hmm. you know, I can identify with. I was once young and idealistic and we used to say freedom in our time, F-I-O-T, that was our, like, kind Mm -hmm. of our salute to each other we held up one finger for i the i right me Rand was a big influence on us too but we also were reading the other people including murray but we would say freedom in our time well here i am you know i'm 74 and i don't see freedom in my time but i don't want to put a you know wet blanket over the younger generation or even your age people your age (laughs) uh but I, I'm, I'm just getting really bad vibes. I mean, I watch a lot of YouTube and I try to watch all kinds of points of view and, and uh, libertarian debates among the six people who are going for the nomination for the LP and the fights within the LP and, the, you know, the, uh, the, the takeover by the Mises caucus uh, last year. And, you know, I keep up on that. I'm not, I'm not in the party. Uh, and also, you know, of course, we've got to convince a lot of people who don't, think of themselves as libertarians now. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. this is really the point. It's not, it's not a debating club. Uh, and, you know, I've always been a big believer in reason. Reason was one of my favorite words, is one of my favorite words. And I think I believed that even before I read Ayn Rand. But, you know, and I Aristotle, it was like Aristotle. And so I like reason. But I'm just feeling we're in an era where pers- trying to persuade someone is a, is a futile act.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: People aren't persuadable. I mean, I listen to arguments, even when I disagree with them, and I try to think them over. I really believe it's very important to put yourself in the shoes of the other person and, and see what it is he's saying. Not mm-hmm. to say, okay, you're, you're probably right about this. Not that. But, you know, it's a John Stuart Mill kind of idea in, uh, on liberty, mm-hmm. which is a great plea for freedom of, uh, of speech and press. It half the book, half the book, the other half is kind of a related uh, subject. But he said, take the strongest case of the other person, uh, of the other side. Go to their strongest advocate. Don't go to somebody on your side and say, summarize that view we both hate. That's not what you do. And you have to also use the principle of charity, which get, take the best interpretation, the strongest interpretation. One of my beefs with what we call the left Although I don't think these terms mean anything. I don't know if you're aware of the book by those Lewis brothers, those two guys, uh, Ver, Verlin and, uh, and Hiram Lewis on the, the myth of left and right. Very interesting book about those terms just are, are hodgepodge of, of uh, positions with no underlying logic. And they can easily sw- The two could easily switch positions. And we know they've done that on like intervention with Russia, views toward Russia. Right. It used to be mm-hmm. a Republican right, right wing sort of thing left was against it. Now it's, they switched. Right, right. It's contingent. It's not, it's not because they consulted their principle, an underlying principle. So one, one of my problems with the left is that, that I hear like Max Blumenthal and people like that, who I don't, I don't know these people. I only watch them. They never, they never steal man. We have this expression you now, steel man, which comes from the opposite of straw man, right? They never steal man the other side. And not that I think the other side is good. I mean, I disagree with them. The interventionists, the people that think we ought to be trying to weaken Russia— through Ukraine down to the very last Ukrainian and our last dollar, Well, we're actually way past our last dollar because we're deep in debt. You certainly mm. talked enough about that stuff. Um, I want to know what, why the other side thinks we ought to be doing something else. I don't like to just reduce it to the military-industrial complex. That's too Marxist, materialist for me. Mm. I think it's much more than that. I think it's ideology. As my friend Jeff Hummel always says, ideas rule the world. Not, I don't think, the bottom line of, uh, of uh, you know, Lockheed Martin. Now, they may, they may applaud the, the policy because they can make some money off it, but maybe they believe it too. You know, somebody once said, if this country is worth saving, it's worth saving at a profit. Maybe they believe that. Maybe they mm-hmm. sincerely believe this new Cold War stuff that Russia and China are dangerous to us and Iran they can believe that. I think I don't think they're right, but it's not an insane position. It's something you can Im- imagine someone believing, given a worldview, and still think there's money opportunities. I can sell stuff to the government and, uh, you know, in pursuit of this. So both things are possible. The, what bothers me about the left is they, uh, they reduce it to one thing, and I don't, tr- I don't trust that. They're also anti-free market. They're anti-capitalist, and I don't trust that. Um, so I'm just getting the sense that reason doesn't have any uh, have clout with people. I'm not saying there aren't any exceptions, of course, but really, is the LP going to convince people of anything? And you know, it's not a criticism of the LP. I just don't think the public is perceptive to it, receptive to it. Uh, what's you know that goes for national divorce and all this stuff, all these things that are being talked about, regardless of your position on on, on the particular issue. So that's. Kind of why I'm feeling pretty bleak. I mean, I I'm feeling like, well, why speak up? It's like voting. We're back to this is the third time I've made this analogy. Why should I walk to the polls and I wouldn't have to drive? Why walk? It's not gonna make any difference. So why say X? It's not gonna make any difference. So I've been on social media very little, Mm a little bit lately, probably because of Gaza, but I pretty much dropped off it. So I don't know if I answered your question.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, you did, and that's actually partly why i think i decided to start openly pushing for texas secession is because you know you don't need to all you got to do is convince enough people to say hey do you agree that you would object if the federal government started bombing them if they did that but you know it's not that you got to get a bunch of people to you know say yes i think it'd be a great idea if texas broke away just as long as you know enough public opinion was against punishing them with violence that's Mm -hmm. all you would need um for, for precisely the reason you say that. Yeah. I just, it's funny. Maybe everyone goes through this cycle. When I was in my young twenties, I really just like, I—I I wrote for a, a website called antistate.com And we had like a forum that people could join and, you know, talk about ANCAP ideas and private police forces and military defense and that, 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 and that the membership was, was just growing over time. And I remember doing extrapolations and thinking, okay, so by this date, at this rate of growth, you know, fifteen percent of the U.S. population is going to be anarcho-capital, and that didn't happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it was, you know, it was more like the the few people who believed it found the website, and some of them joined, and some of them did, and then that's what I just noticed in the upstate. And it wasn't that we were going, but at that point, I just thought, well, no, these ideas are so obvious, and wouldn't everyone's default be to not use coercion? And if we can just show them that, you know, this is why the, the state, as you conceive, it is unnecessary for social cooperation and peace and harmony, blah, blah, everyone will just see the light. And at this point now it's like, oh no, people are so, like you say, they, they know, they know what the answer, what they want the answer to be. And then they'll backfill a rationalization for it. No, so everybody mm-hmm. on the surface is arguing with, with logic and facts and whatever, but you kind of just, you can see that, no, you're not even listening to what the other side is saying. Like you're not yeah. even trying. It seems more tribal than
1: ever these times. Now, I don't mm-hmm. want to fall prey to looking back at a golden age, because if you go back right. to that golden age, there are people saying the very same thing. Oh, if only we could go back to an earlier golden age. You know, I, to give it a little perspective, you know, in Aristotle you can find the words the ancient philosophers said. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's saying that in, what, 400 BC. <laughs> so that is, So I'm aware of that danger, that I may be a codger thinking, ah, what about the good old days right. when you could argue and possibly in, and, and, and also leave on good terms, even if you haven't convinced the other? I used to be able to argue with my older brother, my late brother, about, and I remember doing this over the phone about Israel. He was very mm. pro-Israel. He lived for a year or more in Israel in the kibbutz, met his, met his future wife. there, uh, And he knew my position. I knew his position. And he wasn't a religious person. I'm sure he was an atheist. He called himself an agnostic, but I think he was afraid to call himself an atheist. Mm -hmm. He was was a cowardly atheist. But we would argue for hours about Israel, and it never got unfriendly. It was collegial. It was friendly. You know, it was constructive. I don't think either moved the other. We might each learn something, but our positions didn't change. My position didn't change. His position didn't change. But it was so friendly. I realize this is like two people. Mm -hmm. These days, I can't talk to my family a family that's still around, they don't want to talk about it with me. I mean, I've I've been told terrible things. I've been, by people close to me have told me I'm an apologist for terrorism, terrorists, Mm -hmm. for merely saying there's no evidence Iran ever tried to develop a nuclear weapon. All you need to do is read uh, Gareth Porter's Manufactured Crisis, a very well-documented book. They they never actually tried to build one. A war my Another person close to me said, because of my views, and because I published this book on uh, Coming to Palestine, which I'll put a plug in for, <laughs> Amazon.com, I was told by a, a close relative, you're an accomplice in the next Holocaust. That's a pretty nasty thing to say. Yeah, yeah. That's a pretty bad thing to say to somebody, especially since when it couldn't be further from my, my view. So... People don't seem to talk to each other. Uh, you know, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe people have experiences will, which will talk me down from this. I'd be very happy to hear about it. I mean, I like, I like to be wrong. Some, you know, a lot of things I'd like to be wrong about, many things.
0: <laughs> I think, well, let me throw out a theory, and, and you uh, tell me what you think about it. Or it's a hypothesis. It's not a fully fleshed-out theory. Right. Um, I think there are two significant things that I think are partly to explain is one is the rise of social media and, and specifically the mechanism being without the standard gatekeeping. So now you get to see not just what, you know, the, the best of the people who've been through some sort of vetting procedure representing each side's take, but you can see, you know, what, what the masses feel like. And so therefore on some issue, if, 5% 5% of the people are very articulate and well thought out and they're, they are trying to steal man, the opposition. And then the other 95%, I forget what percentage I said are just completely tribalistic and like, Oh yeah, that's, you know, it doesn't surprise me that you would say that you retard and dah, 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 and all that stuff that that kind of makes you jaded. And then you think, okay, well, it's a point that these people are idiots, you know, look at them. I'm not, I'm not inventing this. Go ahead and look. And then when both sides start seeing that day in and day out, and then also that fuels like with more open entry into the punditry class, let's say w- who rises to the top. It's, you know, it's not the the most soft spoken, well-mannered people. It's like yeah. the most bombastic are the ones that then become, yeah. you know, the, the, the biggest in that genre. And so, yeah. you know, like, like somebody who's like has the same views as Alex Jones, but he's more, uh, toned down a little bit is not going to all of a sudden become more popular than Alex Jones. And so, and I'm not even saying that as a, I'm just picking him as an example of what I mean. Or, like with Paul Krugman, there were plenty of Keynesian macroeconomists who thought, who are just more polite than he was and wouldn't just, you know, say George Bush is a war criminal and da 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 whatever. It hates poor people and the Republicans are all evil. And that's the only possible explanation for their behavior is they just want poor people to suffer. There are plenty of macroeconomists who had the same economic views as him, but were more respectful of credit. But you don't hear them because Krugman, you know, his fans liked him more because he was more over the top. So anyway, I think that's might be part of it. And then the other thing was just with Trump. Like news organizations openly I, I remember I, I've said this a few times where I heard someone on NPR in the you know during the Trump administration actually explain to the listeners and saying we've made an editorial decision from now on when the when President Trump says something false, we are going to say in our coverage. Which is not true, or claims without evidence. Wh- whereas they never used to say that even about the you know crazy third world dictator. You know they never used to say that they would just openly yeah. and so and so the president of the country claims that da, 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 how it, they might find a critic and quote the critic to say. However, human rights groups disagree with the claim, saying blah blah. blah. But here they said with Trump, no, we are going to actually, as NPR, say. He is wrong on this, and that to me yeah. was kind of a qualitative like, oh, he's the first world leader who's lied in history. That's interesting uh, i I never
1: like Trump. I mm-hmm. don't like anything about him, but I will say that there is such a thing as trump derangement syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way I like to put it and i've been think I've been taking this and said it to a couple of people for years now. I despise Trump and I despise most of the people who despise Trump, yeah, so that's how I put it. <laughs> Uh, Look, you were mentioning technology, social media, Mm -hmm. plenty to do with it. I've always used my whole name. But even that, the fact that you're not face-to-face with people does make people free to be more insulting or Mm -hmm. obnoxious than they would ever be in person. I'm I'm sure that's true. Uh, I love technology. So, you know, I can go online and look at the latest pictures of my grandkids on Mm -hmm. on Facebook, which is one of the few reasons I go on. Or see my, my two grown daughters, or my, my son, he doesn't post so much. Or listen to his music on YouTube Music. So I, I'm a big fan of it. But there's, you know, everything has a downside. I always, another, to mention Thomas Sowell again, famous line of his, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. And I think mm-hmm. that's the world we live in. Uh, that's always been the case. But it's really illustrated by some of this. You know, There's plenty of things to complain about, thanks to social media. And so I'm serious. I'm not denying that. But think of all the good, too. And I'm not telling you. I mean, you right, right. This. I mean, after all, here we are talking. Yeah. You're in the uh, New England. I'm in Arkansas. And uh, I, I remember back years ago when I was debating whether, whether the U.N. needed to do something about overpopulation, which, you know, I was a Julian Simonian. And mm. the answer is no. <laughs> we need more people. Uh, I remember it, on NPR, I was debating somebody. And I was in a studio in D.C., and this person was in the studio in Wisconsin, and I was attacking the idea that the Earth has a carrying capacity, Mm -hmm. you know, for human beings, despite what they are for butterflies and rats and, you know, bacteria in a a Petri dish. And the woman said, are you saying we're different from the other animals? And I said, you're in Wisconsin, and I'm in uh, in uh, D.C., and there's not even a wire connecting us, and we're talking as if we're in the same room. Do I need to answer your question?" (laughs) yeah (laughs) so people forget that and people don't have perspective today that's the other thing libertarians i hope do do because they they run into all the great progress that's been made over over the years in the fall in absolute poverty and you know just unbelievable statistics thanks to globalization and markets i know globalization is a dirty name so there's two kinds there's government managed and there's laissez-faire and we were a little closer to laissez-faire, maybe you know, considerably closer to laissez-faire a bit earlier. It was always there was always a management. These free trade agreements always yeah, had management, yeah, absolutely. But to say there's been no progress in that, yeah, it doesn't I don't make sense either. So you know outside the, of politics, there's a lot of great things going on. Inside of politics, not so much. If you, know, you can find one or two bright spots maybe.
2: Mm-hmm. But um,
0: so can I just ask you? Uh, yeah. Anything is it that are you saying the you know, like younger people interested in advancing the the prospects for liberty in their lifetimes? Are you just saying you know instead of trying to go out and persuade people or get the right <laughs> candidates or whatever you know maybe you should focus on something? Else. Is is that more what you mean or are you, um, or you're not even saying that you're just I'm saying
1: really for, reluctant to give anybody advice.
0: Okay. You know, maybe I'm missing something. I'm hope, like I said, talk somebody talk me
1: down. If, if someone wants to uh, get in t- contact and, and tell me what I'm overlooking, I'm, I mean, my standard question is, what am I missing? Which is mm-hmm. an, uh, that's not that's not rhetorical. I could well be missing something. So, mm-hmm. I, and like I said, I'd love to be shown wrong. So I, I don't want to give anybody advice if your if your comparative advantage is communicating, writing, speaking. Today, it's much more speaking than than uh, writing. Because I don't know. Are people reading books these days? I don't I don't know. Uh, then maybe that's what you should be doing. Assuming you can make a living at it, too. You need to make a living. Uh, then I wouldn't say, oh, don't do that. You're not going to convince anybody. You no, know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's a important group of people out there that's just primed for, they just need to hear this and say, oh, wow, I never thought of that before. Well, yeah, how come no one ever told me that? Uh, so, you no, know, I don't, I would hate to, Steer somebody off a track they're really determined to go on in this in, in communication uh, and advocacy if, uh, if that's what they want to do.
0: Prove, you know, I'll, I'll hand down a challenge. Prove me wrong, and yeah. please. <laughs> well, I remember I was disillusioned in 2008, you know, like in the fall, you know, with the financial crisis and how many people that were certainly called themselves conservatives and even libertarians and i think a lot of it had to do with the fact that it was a republican in the white house which you know shouldn't matter were defending you know what we call colloquially the bailouts and yeah. i remember thinking what is the point of all of the free market writing that you know i've done and other people have done and all these you know institutions we have if we can't even get in a moment like this yeah. just Again, a bunch like a, a hardcore group that will just come out and say no, you shouldn't bail out the banking system. Like that's that doesn't make that bad morally and economically. And it, just to see how yeah. quickly, because they got, were worried, and in and, and the you know Paulson came out and told them some scary stuff. And I was like, oh okay, well then yeah, we need hundreds of billions of dollars in bailouts. Like and how George fast Bush they we, rolled over.
1: George Bush said we need to uh, destroy the free market to protect it. Yeah, I mean, did, did these did those libertarians that you're talking about never think there was going to be a crisis? I mean, it's happening today with foreign intervention, right? right. With uh, Ukraine and with Israel. There are libertarians, and I, I'm in a little group that talks about this and kind of laments it, a little online group, uh, of libertarians. They, they tend not to be historians. We've noticed a pattern. There are other things besides historians, or like philosophers or uh, legal scholars or something like that, who... who um, want to totally back ukraine and totally back israel and so, so if they gave lip service to non-intervention previously oh well we didn't mean this in these cases right and so i wonder what the older libertarians rothbard and others would be saying i mean who knows rothbard's a little unpredictable i'm not sure. he would i'm not saying he would have backed these but he couldn't always yeah he once was pro-immigration <laughs> mm-hmm. i'll just put it that way it was earlier in his in the early 80s, he was uh, he was, he was pro-freedom of immigration, which is not a subject you and I won't get into now, I'm sure. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't understand. Are they fair-weather libertarians that, that you're talking about and, and now that I'm talking about, too? And so they seem to cave immediately. And I'm sure it happened on COVID, too. And I don't want to – you know, I wasn't writing a lot about COVID. There was a lot going on here. I never endorsed any, but, you know, I certainly didn't do what Jeff Tucker and others were doing, which delved Mm -hmm. into a totally new subject. Like how's a virus behave? I mean, what do I know about that? Nothing. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't saying a lot, but I wasn't backing it. I know that. Right. Right. Uh, But I wasn't forward on it. Tom Woods, of course, was, and that's why they can compile, he and others can compile books of their writings from back then. I mean, I couldn't do anything like that. I wrote one or two articles. Um, And, you know, if it happened again, I'd know a lot more now. But I wasn't – it just wasn't in – a, in a, I wasn't in a place where I could suddenly, you know, pick up books on virology or study the uh, the Spanish flu from 1919 or 1819, whatever, and uh, like some people did. And, um, you know, I didn't have my voice. On the other hand, would one more voice have t- turned things around? I really don't – and mine especially. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think yeah. I would have convinced
0: Fauci. So uh, – I guess what I'm saying though is that yeah I I had that moment of uh discouragement and it's in realizing oh wow this is that I had I had thought before the fall of 2008 that there was a solid group of people that you know had standard basic free market principles under their belt and yeah if just because there was this ostensible financial crisis that they wouldn't you know just cave so easily and and when that happened I I realized oh wow the the support here is yeah, Like what I thought we were doing, like me and my libertarian economist buddies and all the writing and great speeches we're giving and all the YouTube views, I realized that my view of what our stronghold was 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 overrated. That no, actually the, the group that we have that are really committed to these principles and understand it is smaller than I had thought.
1: Yeah, yeah my one uh, personal uh, uh, pride from that era was I wrote an article – I was still at the Freeman, yeah – called wall street couldn't have done it alone because you had you had occupy wall street come along
2: right right right. right at
1: that time which kind of overlapped wasn't there some overlap at the tea party i think so yeah so i i did and i purposely did it so that it would fit on one page it was a bunch of bullet points maybe i don't know 10 or 15 i was so happy with it and the point is if it was one page you could do a flyer right and give it out like a and it even got on Counterpunch, which is a left wing, mm-hmm. you know, in some sense, a left wing publication, right? It was Alexander uh, uh, Coburn and other people. He died. I don't know exactly he died. But yeah, they're not publishing pro capitalist stuff. Although I used to be able to get in there even with pro capitalist stuff. So for some reason, they liked me. Coburn liked me for some reason. And his successor liked me, his partner. Um, and that, so, and that was in the Freeman and got into other places. Uh, so that's my one, that was my one contribution that the people that wanted to say, see, and even Greenspan even said, remember he testified in Congress saying, yeah, I was wrong. I was wrong mm-hmm. thinking a free market would work. I forgot, you know, I forget exactly what he, how he put it. You probably have better memory of that than, than I do. But he basically did a mea culpa, right? Forgive me, I believed in laissez faire. That's that's what caused all. Yeah, I'm
0: trying to. You're right. It was something like my my faith in the market was mis- was overly <laughs> yeah. re- something like that. Yeah, yeah. Did I land
1: spin in her grave? I wonder.
0: <laughs> um. So, I guess so. Where does that leave us then? Is it is it just you're saying? Uh, is this So that like for me, that's why I've sort of pivoted. So yeah, I will still of course occasionally release episodes like here on the Bob Murphy Show about. The mechanics of a purely free society. And here's how it would work just to occasionally remind Mm. people of this vision. But in terms of my day to day efforts, now I am, like I say, focusing on any, you know, anything involving politics is more I'm focusing on secession. And then I even picked Texas to make it a very concrete, specific thing, as opposed to just the broad, you know, national divorce thing. Uh, And then doing stuff in the financial sector, like like building you know, we're, yeah. real world solutions to things to give some, because again, that, that's like the model for me is, is Uber. Instead of writing essay after essay about getting rid of the taxi cab medallion, you know, the medallion system, just somebody founding Uber and then, you know, arguing that, Hey, the local city council shouldn't ban Uber. To me, that's a way better way to show people and to get more competition in their lives. Yeah.
1: yeah um, First of all, I like your show a whole lot, and and the other one you do, the Human Action, because uh, one of the things you've done there that I learned some much from, and I I always I almost always email you the next day, you'll 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 testify to that, right? Mm-hmm. Saying you good show, you teach libertarians something. I mean, maybe you're primarily talking to libertarians, I guess you are, but you're telling them things that they overlook because you pick up examples like you had that one thing about uh, trade deficits where you picked up on a uh, a Milton Friedman comment, and I bet that's the only time he ever said anything like that because I never heard that. And all the all the arguments and wars I've been in over free trade, mm-hmm. like in my earlier career, I never heard anyone say. And actually, I, I won't even be able to remember exactly what it is. You'll know what I'm talking about. But Friedman sort of implied
0: that what a, de- a, a deficit is a good thing. Yeah, yeah he, you're right. Unfortunately, I can't remember the exact wording. Yeah. And you're also, yeah. I also agree with you. I, it seemed like a, an unfor, or an unusual yeah. error because on his part, stoked. saying something like a country that's running a trade deficit is getting the better of the oh, yeah, sucker on the other be end because they're getting more goods yeah. for less or something like my, that.
1: And all my yeah. arguments with the Council for Competitive Economy when, mm. and trade was a huge part of that because this was the last of uh, the quarter years and, uh, and Reagan was a protectionist. He was not a free Mm -hmm. trader, even though he claimed he was. Um, We never said anything like that. We used to say Adam. We used to quote Adam Smith. Nothing is more absurd than this whole doctrine of the balance of trade. Mm -hmm. Uh, That there's been deficits in good times and bad times. There's been surpluses in bad in in bad times. So, you know, that's not an indicator. I never Mm -hmm. heard that. I never heard that Friedman statement. But I never heard anyone else say that either. So I learned. Even if he only said that that one time, you're mm. spelling it out really,
2: mm. I
1: thought, made things very clear and should have to your whole audience. So, and you've done that more that kind of thing more than once. I can't think of examples now. So I really appreciate it. Just go back and look at your emails from me, and you'll see what elicited that view from me. Uh, your conversations have been very good. Someday we can talk about secession because I have some questions and problems with it. Okay. But, um, well, let's <laughs> I I look forward to, you know, to that. Uh, so yeah, just uh, my schedule is a fairly clear schedule. Yeah. So. Uh,
0: uh, okay, well, that's probably a good spot for us to wrap up on in this particular conversation. Sure. So, uh, folks, my guest this week has been Sheldon Richmond. So, Sheldon, thanks for your time and your insights and all the work. This has
1: been such a good time. I could go the rest of the day doing this, but you can't. <laughs> <laughs> I really mean it. I'm, I'm having a.
0: Oh, I appreciate that. I I have, that's right. Yes, because
1: I like you a lot. You're a good guy.
0: <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. And, it, and uh, I should say it doesn't surprise me that the, the left outlets like you, like you, um, I can't put my finger on it, but it's, you don't come off as like a right wing crotchety, uh, oh, if the poor are poor, that's because they didn't work hard enough. Guy, I'm not you know I, mean? I I hate yeah. those
2: terms. Mm hmm.
0: I don't want to be on the left. <laughs> so I, I think that's why, like, you know, you seem earnest and that even people who will, would be called leftist yeah. would let you come on and explain, well, gee, maybe there's a problem with having the Federal Reserve, you know, and, and not just because you want to exploit the poor or something. So
1: Right. And, and I've learned so much from you about MMT.
0: Ah, yes. Or that's what another I call MMT. <laughs> Very good.
1: <laughs> but I, I shouldn't really say that because I don't know enough about it. You do. I've only learned from you. So i I have no formal training in economics, so they could, they could probably run rings around me just because I don't, I know so little.
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's the last thing I'll say on that. It, it is an interesting thing where, um, they're, they're sophisticated enough that I, that's why I started taking them seriously is because I saw when people from quote, our side were just merely mocking them and saying yes. like, Oh yeah, just run the printing press idiots. Huh, 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 that that wasn't going to be enough because they did have like some decent comebacks and there was a little bit of sophistication in their presentation. That's, so That's
1: your shtick. That's yep. what you do. Mm-hmm. You go beyond uh, not don't, don't to sneer and make fun yep. of and uh, let's look you're putting yourself in the shoes their shoes temporarily. Yes. Let's take it seriously. That's what exactly what I'm talking about. Well, that's, that's why I like the show I guess.
0: Okay, well thank you very much. <laughs> thank you and that's why I've appreciated your work as well. So uh, with that, folks, thank you for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time.
1: You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.